I will say about it and what can I do about it. So the plan is actually to spend quite a long time on some practical tips. Hopefully you'll find that useful. So let's start with the definition. Anxiety, a painful or apprehensive uneasiness of mind, usually over an impending or anticipated ill, a fearful concern or interest. Pretty self-explanatory. Second definition in psychology, a feeling of dread or fear or apprehension, often with no clear justification. So that's when you're anxious, but you don't really know why, right? You just have this feeling. It doesn't go away. So where did anxiety come from? What, what's the deal? Why do we even have to deal with this? Well, first of all, it's part of that flight or fight response. So it's a, a natural way that we respond to danger, to situations that require our attention. And in the right way, it's meant to cause us to focus, to to be motivated to fix that issue, to address that issue. But in the distorted world, thanks to the fall, it causes us worry, to not have peace, to not sleep, to do all those things that you don't like that are associated with anxiety. So when we look at some symptoms of anxiety, you can see here obsessive thoughts, not being able to relax, fatigue, trouble sleeping, lots of different symptoms of anxiety. So these are all the ways it can impact you in a negative way. Now, if you have these symptoms, does it mean you absolutely have anxiety? No, because I'm sure you can imagine if you have a newborn, you probably have some fatigue. Pretty fair, right? But this is just to let you know that sometimes we misdiagnose um, physical symptoms for something different. We don't even consider that it could be anxiety as the root. So just some food for thought there. Today when we look at anxiety, we really want to look at anxiety that interferes with our daily life, that prevents us from having that full, abundant life that God promises. So to do that, let's look at some signs of anxiety. This would be dysfunctional levels of anxiety. Right? So these are not, this is not the type of anxiety, I wish I had a better English word for it. It's not the anxiety that causes you to actually do something productive. Okay, so like I had anxiety or concern or nerves or interest and this talk going well this morning, as you can imagine. Public speaking is one of the number one fears people have. Interesting. Anyways, um, so as I was concerned about this, what did I do? I actually did research. I made this PowerPoint for you. I took notes. I practiced. I did all sorts of functional things, right? And that's a functional way to deal with anxiety. But these signs of anxiety are dysfunctional or they don't have a purpose. So are you constantly tense, worried, or on edge? Does your anxiety interfere with your work, school, or family responsibilities? Are you plagued by fears you know are irrational, but you can't shake them? Do you believe that something bad will happen if certain things aren't done in a certain way? Do you avoid everyday situations or activities because they cause you anxiety? Do you experience sudden, unexpected attacks of heart-pounding panic? And do you feel like danger and catastrophe are around every corner? So as you can imagine, all of these signs, and you don't need to have all of them, if you have one or two, probably says this message might be really helpful. So all of these say you're not living that full abundant life that Christ has promised in his word. And the reason why that's happening is because, as I mentioned, because of sin and fall and the distortion that's happened in our cognitions. Thank you, Adam. 
I was just saying in first service, if we could take a time machine and go back to the start, you know, really ask Adam and Eve to just keep it together. That would be really helpful. But they didn't. And if they had, someone else wouldn't have. So we're in this predicament today. So let's look at one of the ways that we're created. Let's look at the impact of our thoughts. So your habits of thinking lead to emotions. Your emotions lead to attitudes, and your attitudes lead to moods. Now, okay, let's think about that verse in 2 Corinthians 10.5. It says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Sounds good. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Huh. I think it's related to this. Right? Take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Make sure that it lines up with his word, with his truth, with his character. Because guess what? What you think about affects your emotions, your moods, your attitudes. So let's look at an example. If you have worry, that typically is going to lead to fear, which is going to lead to anxiety, which always results in depression. That's the way we're wired. That's just the way we're made. But what if we did what God says in his word about praying without ceasing, right? And everything give thanks. If your habit of thinking is prayer, it leads to thankfulness, which leads to peace and then joy. That sounds a lot more like the abundant life that God promised us, right? So what this says is that whoever or whatever controls my thinking also controls my feelings. And this is why your thought life is so important. It's so important that we pay attention to what we're thinking about. Okay, well, I've got good news. Good news for you. First of all, the Bible has a lot to say about anxiety. God really cares about our mental well-being. And he has equipped us to effectively manage it. That's pretty exciting news, right? He didn't leave us in the lurch because God's always faithful. Guess what? He knew the fall was going to happen. But he still got our back. Right? He always has a plan. All right, so let's look at what the Bible says about this. Now, these verses, these first verses, what I'm really trying to establish here for you is that anxiety is not God's best for us. Now, you might, you know, inherently have a good sense that that's true, but let's just use some some Bible to back that up. So in Deuteronomy 28, this is when the nation of Israel is getting the list of blessings and curses if they choose to obey God or if they choose to reject him. Not surprisingly, this is in the curses section. It says in the middle there that the Lord will give you an anxious mind. Definitely not God's best for us. I'm guessing if it's associated with a curse, you know. Okay. That didn't take a deep theological leap there. Um, Secondly, in Proverbs, anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. In Luke, Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? So I think that's pretty interesting. I mean, who here can worry themselves up an extra hour? I mean, normally if I'm worrying, I'd lose some time, right? Like for an hour goes by, two hours goes by. You know, studies have shown that stress actually shortens our lifespan thanks to all the horrible things it does to our physical body. So 
clearly worrying in this sense and in an unproductive sense is not correct. Now, it's not saying that you can just sleep all day and not put food on the table and not provide for your family. That's not the point. The point is don't unproductively worry. Right? Does that make sense? It's a little bit different. And then in the parable of the sower, we have the seed falling among the thorns. And that's referring to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word. And I've always just looked at the thorn, you know, the seed among the thorns, really as materialism and kind of stopped there. I didn't really think about it further. But it's also saying that when you're preoccupied with the worries of this life, when you're not able to fully engage because worry or anxiety is drawing your attention, it makes you unfruitful. Okay. So we're going to look at a story in Acts. You can read it maybe up there. I'm not going to actually read it to you. Um, But it just gives a human experience, a common human experience when we're dealing with the stress of storms. So you can read that there in Acts 27, 15 to 20. And I just want to kind of walk you through the reaction to the, the people on this boat as the stress of the storm continued. So on day one, They attempt to resist the storm by heading into the wind. They seek to adjust to the storm by making the lifeboat secure and passing ropes under the ship. And they prepare to endure the storm by lowering the sea anchor and letting the ship be driven along. Okay, so what do we get out of that? Well, insight number one says, when first confronted with a sudden storm, individuals strive to use personal expertise and all available resources to counter the impending threat. Some of us might just call that problem solving. That seems reasonable, right? Got a problem? Let's solve it. (laughs) Fantastic. Okay, well, that's great, except the storm didn't stop. This was not a solvable problem. And it says on day two, after a violent battering from the storm, they begin to throw the cargo overboard. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us when storms force individuals to plan for survival, non-essential aspects of life and vocation are abandoned. So this cargo was probably just some extra income they were getting by transporting it. It probably wasn't, you know, specifically necessary for their voyage. And they got rid of it because they thought, you know, we need to make a change. We're not handling the storm well. We need to do something. And you can imagine parallel to your life, you might give up a hobby, you get rid of some extra responsibilities, you're tired, you need to make space, etc. Okay, that seems reasonable. Day three, storm's still going on. This is one storm, I tell you. So day three, they um, threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Okay, what? Like, have you ever read this and been like, what were they thinking? They're fishermen on a boat that probably need to eat. You would think tackle might be important, right? So I've always wondered about this, and it clearly says that they did it on their own with their own hands. It wasn't like it just fell off because the storm was violent. They actually did it themselves. So insight number three says, as storms continue, plans and actions may become irrational, and survival attempts can become self-destructive. Ouch, ouch, ouch. <laughs> Okay, 
And the storm continued, and it said many days later they had given up all hope of being saved, which leads us to our final insight, which says prolonged stress when dealt with outside of the counsel of God, and this is the important part, outside of the counsel of God, will usually lead to disabling emotional and physical depression. Didn't know that was in the Bible, huh? There it is. So that's a normal human response, and that's what we do outside of God's counsel. Now the good news is there's a better way. In Jeremiah, it talks about, um, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Now, that storm we talked about in Acts was about two weeks, I think. This verse is talking about a whole year, a whole year of drought. That's a pretty big problem. And what God is saying is that if we can have trust in him and confidence in him, we can still be fruitful in that situation. It's not saying the situation doesn't exist. The situation exists, right? It's a year of drought. It was still a year of drought. But the tree is able to continue to bear fruit, and it doesn't have to be preoccupied or taken down by that. It can still be abundant in the midst of the storm. We're also told in Peter that we can cast all of our cares or anxiety on him because he cares for us. And we're told in Ephesians that we need to be made new in the attitude of our minds. Remember this? I think those are related. Right? So, again, we need to really pay attention to our thinking because that's going to ultimately control our emotions, attitudes, and moods. When I look at Colossians 3, 8-10, to 10, it says, Now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. So what does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, it's up to us. Like, we have a part in this process, right? We put off the old self. We put on the new self. And we do it with God's help, right? But it still takes action on our part. So we have a primary part. We need to create some functional distance from old habits. We find new patterns to replace those old ones. That's really important. If you're going to take something away, you have to fill it back up with something else. Like when you dig a hole, you dig that hole, something will fill it. It could be water, it could be more dirt, it could be weeds. If you look at my yard. <coughs> you transform your habits of thinking, and then you use truth until you know it. Now, this is really important. When I mean you use it until you know it, I don't mean you know it. I mean you know it. Yeah. Right? So you can know something in your head... And it can completely not help your emotional state. Right? Because even though you know it, you don't really believe it. You haven't really engaged with it. You haven't really gotten it. Right? You need to know it in the deepest part of your being. So it's the thing you turn to. All right. So what I really want to do is get into some practical, practical tips and what you can do, right? Because this stuff sounds great, and I've been to church on Sunday morning, and the person talks, and I'm like, wow! And I go home, and I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. 
I mean, I know it was really good, but I guess I don't know it yet. So I'm going to try to get really practical. Again, please talk to me afterwards if you have more specific questions. Um, Yeah. What can I do? Let's do some problem solving here. Got a problem. You do problem solving. Hey, you found a solution. Yay. You can be thankful for God's provision. You rejoice and you have peace. See, then I just help you. Just solved all your problems. That's how it works. You get a problem, you find the solution, end of story. Okay, but what about no solution? That's really what we're talking about, right? The first little circle is pretty easy to do. When you have no solution to your problem, you have two choices. Your first choice is you can still be thankful for God's promise. You can still choose to trust him. You can still choose to rest in him. Which, guess what? That also leads to rejoicing and to peace. It doesn't mean you fix the problem, but it does mean you've addressed it. Right? There's a difference between fixing and addressing. And when it's outside of your control, you actively give it to God and say, it's yours. I've done what I can. And then you can rejoice and have peace. Or you always have the option to just worry, have no peace, and still have your problem. It really is your choice. So you can deal with problems, not dwell on them. And that's really key. You want to have a problem, you want to deal with it, and you're done with it. Right? Okay, so here's another thing, the one-minute rule. I'm really excited about this. This is kind of a fun little graph here so we'll walk through it slowly you have sources of your thoughts sources of your thoughts can come from a lot of places people your past your environment your imagination satan different sources of your thoughts having a thought having a thought is just that you had a thought it's not sinful to have a thought where your responsibility comes in is how you respond to that thought what are you going to do with it Okay, now let's look at the right side, the mind. In your mind, you have three areas of memory. You have your immediate, the present, what's happening right now. You have your short-term memory and your long-term memory. The immediate portion of your memory impacts your thoughts. So right now, you're probably having thoughts fairly related to what the slide is, right? Immediate, you're having thoughts. Okay, in your short-term memory, those things start impacting your emotions, And when it's really ingrained into your long-term memory, it impacts your character. That's how it works. This is science. Okay? So this is how it is. Now, when you have a thought come into your mind in that immediate present, you have a choice. You can accept it or you can reject it. Right? Okay, now remember the take captive every thought? Here's the coolest thing about how God created us. Any thought or feeling which is mentally replaced in the first one minute will not create lasting emotional impact. Isn't that cool? That means... (laughs) Wait, that means we can actually deal with all this crazy stuff that's going on in the world, right? Okay, just, just breathe that in. One minute. It is good news. It is good news, and God put it right there in Corinthians. Take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is why. This is why it matters. 
Fantastic. Okay, well, that's great. I don't know how to do that. Like you said, okay, I thought this was going to be practical. Science people, that's practical. Okay. <laughs> Let's go through a couple of specific exercises, okay? First is called thought stopping. So what you can do here, and it often is going to be much, much easier to do this with a friend or a counselor because when you are emotionally embroiled in your thoughts, it is very difficult to analyze them. It just is. Okay, so I encourage you to seek help with this. First of all, recognize what you frequently think about which causes you anxiety. And then recognize how you think about it. Those are a little different. We'll look at an example in a minute. Find alternative stories for that situation. Figure out how, how would you rather think. Put off that old self and put on your new thinking patterns, your new mind. See how that would reflect your beliefs, right? The new mind should better reflect the character of Christ. Figure out how you can actually use this and then remind yourself to do it. It's great if you figure this all out, but if you don't do it, it's not very helpful. Okay, so an example. What? I, can seem, cons- I seem concerned about what others think about me. That's reasonable. A lot of us have that. How do you know that's what you're concerned about? Well, I worry about what they're saying about me. That's more specific. See how that's more specific? And then you can imagine that if it's, I'm worried about what they're saying about me, probably you're not worried about what they're saying about you when you're at home eating popcorn on the couch watching a movie. It's probably more like you're in the same room as they are or you've just seen them. Right? See how this how helps you identify situations this could happen in? So you're more ready? Okay. And then you could find alternatives. What are some different thoughts you could have instead? Well, I could focus on trying to be more encouraging. I could be more concerned about their problems than mine. Those are alternatives. So what's the actual new pattern? Well, I would like to think more about the needs of others. That sounds like a renewed mind to me. That sounds like the mind of Christ, right? So that's the new pattern. How are you going to implement it? Well, when I'm tempted to worry about myself, I can choose to replace that thought before it has lasting emotional impact in that first one minute with thoughts of concerns for others. So, I mean, you got a minute. you got 60 seconds. So you kind of have to be on top of this, right? It does take practice. So how are you going to practice? Well, keep a journal. Keep a journal for yourself. Reflect on your day. Did you do good? Did you do bad? Hey, you're learning. You're practicing. It's like learning to walk when you're a child. When the child learns to walk, you rejoice at every positive, small thing they do. And all the other stuff you kind of forget about, right? You don't think about, oh, well, they could have fallen this other way. That would have been softer landing. (laughs) Nope, you're just happy they tried. Give yourself grace with this. When you do your journal, you're happy you tried. Okay? Because if you fell, it means you were trying. It means you're trying something new. You're doing something different. And that's change, and that's awesome. Okay, so that's thought stopping. Second example, truth cards. A lot like ungodly beliefs. A little different implementation. So the first thing is you're going to track your mental fear habit with if-then statements. If this happens, then it's going to result in that. So my example is, if I don't pass this test, then I will fail the class. 
Okay, now a proper response to that thought would be if I don't pass this test, I'll fail the class, I better study. Right? You better get the notes. I should probably actually attend class. I should find out when that exam is. I should turn in my homework. Okay, that would be a normal response to that concern, but in many cases, you end up kind of freezing. You get this worry. It's just, it's immobilizing. So in that level of anxiety, really, your concern probably isn't just about failing the class. So you're going to follow this track of thinking until you figure out what future catastrophe you're actually worried about. So in this example, it could go like this. If I don't pass this test, I'm going to fail the class. If I fail the class, I might not graduate. If I don't graduate, that's going to be a huge disappointment to my parents. And if I really disappoint my parents, I'm going to be a complete failure in life. And then clearly no one will ever love me. <laughs> right? You know we do this. This is just kind of how we mull on these problems and explode them into huge issues. And, you know, if you're not in this situation, you think, that's crazy. But when you are in the situation, this feels very true. And it feels very true because you've told it to yourself as the truth for a while. You kind of made this your truth. So what you want to do is combine that first thought with your final catastrophe. So in this example, it would be, if I don't pass this test, I will be a complete failure in life and no one will love me. That's what you're really saying. You don't judge that. You just write that down. And then you say, okay, well, what's actually the truth? Let's transform the statement into truth. So the truth is you may or may not pass that test. You don't know. You can't predict the future. But even if you don't pass the test, you're fully loved and accepted in Christ Jesus. That's the truth. See how you take that final catastrophe and you turn it into something that conforms to Christ's truth? So you take that, and then you're going to find scripture to add to it because you're going to be tempted to think that you just made that up. Right? Because you've been practicing your your fear statement for a long time and, and you've accepted that as truth and so you need to have something that you know is truth. So you add scripture to it. So in this case, I selected Romans 38, um, 8, 38 to 39, which says, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. I literally did not know that was in there until this morning when I thought I should really look up that full verse. (laughs) Isn't that phenomenal? So whatever you're worried about or have anxiety about, God still loves you. It's not going to change that. Even if you pass that test. Or fail that test. He still loves you. Okay, so you've added your truth. You're going to find a way to consistently apply this. Oh, really important points. You need to use this at least as much, at least as much, at a minimum, as much as you've practiced your fear statement. So if you've been practicing your alternate reality for 20 years... It's time to get going on some truth. It's just how it works. This is like, I um, I was thinking about when I was practicing the piano as a child and I'd play these songs and I'd make a mistake and then my piano teacher would say, well, you know, every time you make that mistake, you know, you're creating this bad habit. So really you have to play it correctly 40 times 
to erase that so you play it, you know, so you do it the right way. So God's grace doesn't say we have to do it 40 times as much. It just says at least as much. Okay? Develop a plan for accountability and follow-up. That's really important. We'll get into why that's really important in a minute. Put this statement on a 3x5 card. Super practical tip. If you've been practicing this for a long time, you might want to laminate that card. (laughs) Just thinking. So on one side, you put your fear statement, and then you clearly put a no or false or big red X. You do something. So every time you read it, you're getting the message that that's not true. That's pretty important that you do that part. And then on the other side, you're going to put in your truth statement with the scripture, and then you're going to use it. Imagine that. Don't put it in a drawer. Actually use this, and you have two different options. You can either choose to use it every time you have that fear statement, which if you're completely objective and analytical and very disciplined, that will work for you. If you are not those things, which most of us are not, you need to probably come up with a preset schedule to use this. So maybe you have a watch that beeps on the hour. Read it. Maybe you have some other trigger you can use. I heard of someone who would put a piece of fruit in the middle of their desk. In the middle, not on the side, in the middle. And every time they got super annoyed that that piece of fruit was there and they couldn't do their work, they had to read their truth statement. So you see, there's ways that you can do this. You can incorporate it into your daily life that makes it really simple and applicable, and you start getting this truth in there. Now let's be reasonable here. What are some reasonable expectations for change? God can do a miracle. He absolutely can. He could make you 100% whole, not have to deal with this ever again. He can erase it in an instant. He doesn't always do that because sometimes he wants us to build our character. So, here's some reasonable expectations. You use this truth, and using this truth until you know it, not just know it, until you fully know it. And in your first week, guess what? You're going to not experience any change. I'm just going to tell you this and be really real with this because you're going to be really tempted to give up. You've been practicing your alternate reality for a really long time, and it takes some convincing of your mind to change it. That's just how it works. So in the second week, you'll probably have less likely, less frequent fear. And this may or may not be measurable. You might have the idea that, oh, maybe this is getting less, and then quickly you'll discount that and say, no, nothing's happening. But now you know that that's what's going to happen, so you're prepared. And then in weeks three to four, you'll probably have even less frequent fear to the point that you start noticing a difference. But three to four weeks is a long time. That's 21 to 28 days. If you've ever tried to do that Daniel fast, you know that's a long time. Right? I'm just being really real with you. This is how you get it in there, and this is how you know it. By week six to eight, could be a little longer depending on how long you've been practicing your other statement. Your change statement will actually come to mind first in that situation. And that's when you know you've actually gotten the truth in so deep that you really know it. And that's a really practical way to take captive every thought in obedience to Christ. Right? At this point, I'm going to turn it over to Anthony to close. Thank you.